You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan, the accursed, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Uh, peace be upon you, good morning, and welcome to the breakfast show, The Voice of Islam, with Imam Tukid Anweev Khan, and myself, Ali at the time. Is three minutes past seven. It's Friday, the twenty-second of September, twenty twenty-three. Uh, the uh, breakfast show is an uh, interactive broadcast. Uh, it means that uh, listeners uh, have the opportunity to join in any of the discussions taking place during the course of the program. All you need to do is to pick up the phone, dial zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. And uh, you'll be put through to share your thoughts with us. Um, so the number again is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, and uh, you can, uh, as I said, uh, we will be put through to share your thoughts with us. Alternatively, you can use a more modern method, uh, what was once called the Twitter uh, X nowadays. Uh, the our handle is Voice of Islam UK. Uh, there are going to be a variety of subjects uh, that are going to be explored this morning. Uh, uh, in a few minutes' time, we'll begin with the rundown of the weather before um, going into them and examining some of the news stories that are doing the rounds these days. Um, and as uh, those uh, listeners would know who are familiar with this uh, particular broadcast, we do hone in on two particular stories that uh, we dwell on, if you like, uh, we spend more time on. Uh, well, as far as today is concerned, our first topic will be considering the honour that has been accorded to a Nobel uh, Prize winner by uh, Imperial College. Um, he was, it was to the first uh, Muslim scientist to have been awarded the Nobel Prize, and uh, Imperial has uh, uh, now named the library after him. So the title of this topic is Imperial College Library, renamed to Nobel Prize Laureate. Uh, Abdul Salam. Uh, we'll be talking to his son, Ahmad Salam, about this, uh, so that should be really interesting. So if you are also interested in this topic, do make sure you're tuned in during that uh, time. Uh, moving on to our second topic is to do with religion and its uh, um, difficulties, uh, particularly when it comes uh, to the UK. Uh, declining Christianity has been a cause of concern or is becoming a cause of concern. And so we're looking at its different aspects in the title of this uh, subject, which is Britain is no longer a Christian country. In fact, if I remember correctly, that was one of the headlines in one of the leading newspapers, I think probably the Times. Anyway, we'll be discussing this with the um, Director of uh, Religion and Global Society Research Unit at the London School of Economics, uh, his, uh, Professor James Walters, uh, and then we'll also uh, be hoping to speak to Dr. Joanna Collicott. Uh, she is a lecturer at Oxford and has a background in clinical psychology, Christianity and arts. Uh, and finally, on uh, another one of um, uh, as one as another one of our esteemed experts, we'll be joined by Professor Tim Hutchings. Professor Hutchings is associate uh, professor of religious ethics at the University of Nottingham, and he will be lending his expertise to help us understand this subject matter. So there's a lot to do. Uh, uh, you can, oh, I hope you can discern uh, from what I've just said that we really have a packed program this morning. Uh, and 
And don't forget, we'll be having the Islamic way to all that we discussed throughout the course of the program. That will be delivered by our resident Imam Imam Tokiz Tanvir. And without further ado, let's go straight to him. Uh, and the weather and uh, uh, any other any news that is relevant to the Abdi Muslim community that is taking place. Yes, uh, <coughs> so we'll start off with the weather. And the forecast for today is that this morning we'll see a dry and sunny start. The afternoon we'll see variable cloud and scattered heavy showers uh, develop a chance of odd rumble of thunder and sunny spells between the showers. And the forecast for tonight, uh, this is from BBC Weather, uh, tonight the showers and uh, variable cloud will dissipate to leave clear spells for many areas with only a few areas of patchy cloud a chilly night with a few patches of mist developing so we can see from the forecast that uh, the weather is uh, getting uh, a lot cooler this this week um, and so you know just make sure that you do uh, have something warm to wear especially this morning it's been uh, quite a chilly start and uh, in terms of the news, um, one of the main headlines on uh, on the Metro newspaper <coughs> is regarding uh, Aditi Shankar, who uh, who makes a medical history uh, drugs drugs free transplant revolution. So uh, the beaming Aditi Shankar has made history as the first. UK transplant patient who will not need drugs for life to stop her body rejecting the new organ, offering hope to others in future. And the eight-year-old's immune system was reprogrammed using stem cells from her mum, who also donated a kidney. Um, and it means that Aditi's body now accepts the organ as its own. So she will not need uh, immunosuppressants, uh, which increase risk of other infection and complications and the pioneering operation was carried out by clinicals at world famous great almond street hospital in london um, and this was led by professor stephen <coughs> mark uh, who 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 led the team uh, so yeah that's that's one of the main uh, headline news um how about yourself uh, brother what other news are there well um we had a um, good event last week uh, in the Abdi Muslim community with the open house. So open house is uh, as, uh, an event that is organized by an external organization and that invites the uh, public to visit iconic buildings in, its, in, its, in the capital. And uh, we were uh, among them and uh, we had a very successful uh, event with the stream of visitors throughout the two days. Had a special corner for children that drew uh, youngsters uh, to it uh, to enjoy themselves while learning about the mosque and uh, plenty of refreshments. Um, and in the feedback forms, I mean, uh, this was very heartening to find that uh, these were uh, to be completed anonymously. And uh, every single one of them was uh, very, very positive, not a single negative comment. Um, and two people even wanted to join the community. One after listening to voice, you and me, voice of Islam, <laughs> and uh, she said, and she said that um, um, uh, she recognised my voice, uh, and I was quite chuffed. 
<laughs> I think to, for a fleeting moment I thought I was famous. But anyway, she said that she recognized my voice and um, the voice of Islam. And she was particularly um, uh, thankful to Voice of Islam because she said that the Voice of Islam station, along with MTA, uh, that this was the station that she listened to during uh, the course of her illness. Apparently she had uh, been diagnosed with some sickness. Mm. And during that illness she said that uh, it was uh, the Voice of Islam that helped uh, to pull her through. So, so, so that was a, a very remarkable Fantastic. encounter. So it shows that. Um, and what was what was her background? Uh, she is uh, well. She's from Tunisia, and she may have had other. Uh, so she she has uh, probably had a Muslim uh, heritage. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. She came with her mother, by the way, mm. uh, and her, her mother was uh, uh, well supporting her, supporting her. And uh, she also gave some something. Our charity, Manifest, had a stand there, so she also you know, gave some uh, a donation to to that charity. So that was a remarkable uh, encounter. Um, then we also had uh, one uh, one particular individual who was very impressed with the library. <laughs> 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 so it was a very special day for me, and uh, as, as a librarian, <laughs> as a librarian, you thought you yeah. you hit the nail on the butt. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I thought, my God, everything is uh, is working for me by Allah's grace. Anyway, and uh, he wanted to sit uh, in the library and read uh, some one or two of the books he found, and he sat there for hours afterwards, um, uh, engaging and uh, asking questions. So it was a very uh, eventful open house. I mean, we have been participating in open house since um, a long time ago, I think at least 20 years. Um, and this was uh, perhaps one of the most eventful ones uh, going. So that was a big story as far as the, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, as far as we, uh, Voice of Islam is concerned, um, and as far as the mosque is concerned mm. uh, in recent times. Um, yeah, I, I also uh, brought um, two, two guests with me, yes. um, so they they also had the first time um, looking at the mosque, um, and yeah, they, they were very very friendly. They, mm. they had a really good time. Um, we sat down. We had a good chat as well. We spoke about religion as well, um, mm. you know, and uh, you know one of the main questions we were discussing as well is that uh, especially nowadays that people are moving more and more away from religion like such as the second segment we'll be looking at as well it looks at specifically christianity but generally um people are moving more and more away from religion and uh, you know the the reason is that uh, as as we are increasing more and more towards materialism um, you know, people are more inclined towards that than God Almighty, and you know th- this is why we're here on Voice of Islam. We, you know, we we here to spread the beautiful teachings of Islam, and uh, you know that's that's why we say that it was the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, Muhammad, who actually came to revive the teachings of Islam, um, and. Uh, you know, especially even within Islam, as it mentioned by different narrations, even by sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, so that a time would come, 
even upon Islam where people would move away from religion. You know, mosques will be there, people would be there as well, but they would be devoured of guidance. And uh, that is where the pro- that is when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, prophesied that at that time, uh, it would be the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, who would come and he would revive the teachings, not only of Islam, but he will also, um, you know, he, he will explain the beautiful teachings of Islam and how uh, other religions as well await for a Messiah to come. So we, we had a very beautiful discussion mm-hmm. and uh, hearing from you as well, Brother Willie, it sounds like uh, it was a very great great and uh, successful event. Oh yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm being recognized. I think that was a <laughs> surprise. Uh, uh, but anyway, yeah. so um, uh, looking at other news, um, I think um, one of the sad uh, events that has taken place is the uh, earthquake in Morocco. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, conti- it's continuing to cause concern. Uh, this is the quake that took the lives of more than 3,000 people and left uh, over 300,000 uh, missing. Uh, the worst destruction has been in the isolated Atlas Mountains. Search and rescue operations may be continuing, but hope for finding uh, anyone alive after so long is diminishing uh, with the passage of time. Urban areas in uh, Marrakesh experienced strong, damaging, shaking, uh, the most severe destruction occurred in small communities in rural mountainous areas in the High Atlas Mountains, uh, Adasil, a village less than 10 kilometers from the epicenter, had widespread damage uh, after experiencing some of the quake's most intense shaking. Most of Tafegate um, has been reduced to rubble and half of the village's residents are dead or missing. Other villages near the base of the Atlas Mountains are affected, and this is extended to the center and suburbs of Marrakesh. Our own uh, Humanity has been there since uh, uh, the second week of uh, this month, uh, along with its partners and local authorities. Uh, they are working to try and uh, alleviate some of the suffering. The uh, report, uh, they report an urgent need for shelter, water, sanitation, bedding, first aid, uh, and, and the like. Uh, they're asking for support and listeners uh, to visit uh, hfuk.org, oblique disaster relief, to offer their support. And uh, our thoughts and uh, prayers are with them and all the victims of uh, natural disasters. Um, in the UK, uh, this story has emerged as uh, something I picked up from the Times. It's about something that has been dominating the news media recently, and that is the Prime Minister's announcement where he scaled back on the government's uh, green policies. Uh, the Prime Minister said that past politicians had not been honest with the public about the cost of net zero. So this is where we have committed ourselves to uh, make sure that we are not emitting as much carbon emissions uh, as we are uh, saving. So uh, we are removing from the atmosphere. So there is a net zero carbon emissions from the UK. Now, this was uh, the policy that was embraced uh, 
Uh, it was supposed to be achieved uh, by 2030, but this is no longer going to be the case. Or it was supposed to be embraced in such a way that certain measures had to be taken by 2030. And what um, um, the Prime Minister warned was that they were in danger of losing the consent of voters and provoking an anti-green backlash in terms of the measures they were taking taking to achieve net zero. So in the announcement, the Prime Minister said that the ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars would be pushed back from 2030 to 2035. He also exempted a fifth of the households from the plan to phase out the sale of new gas boilers from 2035. So he justified this watering down of his net zero policies, saying if we continue down this path, uh, meaning the regional paths, we risk losing the consent of the British people and the resulting backlash would not just be uh, against specific policies, but against the wider mission itself. From what I remember, I think that the the achievement had to be um, attained by 2050. But anyway, Kemi Badenoch, Secretary of State for Business and Trade, was at pains to point out the Prime Minister's announcement was not an abandonment abandonment of achieving net zero, but rescheduling it so that it is manageable by the public. Now, she may have a point, since we can see how people have been repulsed from accepting ULES, uh, even though it will uh, reduce carbon emissions and contribute uh, to our drive to, to achieving net zero. There are critics to this policy change. Uh, Piers Foster the interim chairman of the government's Climate Change Committee, uh, he said that they were likely to take the UK further away from being able to meet its legal commitments, in other words, uh, achieving net zero. Labour have argued that delaying the 2030 ban on sales of new petrol and diesel cars would cost consumers more by preventing a switch to vehicles that are cheaper to run, saying it would reverse the policy. So that's the only part, it seems, of the announcement, and there were um, there was uh, a, a number of uh, measures that uh, uh, the prime minister had clawed back on. But it seems that this was the only part that uh, Labour said that they would uh, retain in the original policy. Now we do have one other story, another a couple of stories, but one uh, that uh, is quite relevant to us in Europe, and that is. Uh, Regarding uh, uh, cracks that are emerging in support of Ukraine, uh, divisions uh, are arising in, in the Western uh, brokered alliance in support of Ukraine in its war against Russia. Uh, in the backdrop uh, of an absence of any meaningful breakthrough uh, in the counter-offensive that was to take territory from Russia, uh, that had been or Ukrainian territory from Russia. Poland has now refused to allow any Ukrainian grain to pass through its borders. Now, this is significant for Kiev since its uh, normal path through the Black Sea is interdicted by Russia and it has no other way to get its grain, grain out. Uh, Poland has been compelled to take this position because the grain that passes through its borders is finding its way to its own markets, affecting its uh, uh, farming community. 
So that's one uh, problem that uh, Ukraine is now having to uh, address. What is worse uh, for the country is the announcement that Poland will no longer provide any weapons to Ukraine. It isn't the hi- the, uh, the highest uh, or the biggest uh, weapons provider, but still uh, it, uh, it does indicate um, something which uh, is not very palatable uh, as far as Kiev is concerned. Needless to say, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is not pleased. He said that it was alarming how some of Ukraine's friends in Europe were playing out solidarity in a political theater making a thriller from grain. Warsaw announced, denounced these uh, words. Uh, they said that they were, uh, the statements were unjustified uh, concerning Poland, which has supported Ukraine since the first days of the war. Uh, the two countries have since sought to cool the round down. And as if this was not enough, uh, President Zelensky was in Washington trying to show um, support for his nation. That is in danger of crumbling. Um, There are already grumblings among some Republicans of the expense that the U.S. um, is having to make uh, and whether it should continue to incur uh, for defending a war far from its shores. And now uh, there is a real prospect of uh, a Trump presidency, Mark II, uh, when there is every chance, and uh, this is a statement uh, that Mr. Trump has made much uh, much too often, uh, that, um, that he will be able to uh, bring this war to an end, he says, in 24 hours. So he's no fan of the war. He wants this war to end. Um, and it is something that may well be very much on the cards, should we be voted into office again. So there is uh, a certain uh, time uh, constraint that uh, is emerging where uh, the uh, where things need to change on the battlefield if... Uh, this uh, support from the U.S. is going to continue. Um, I don't know whether you, uh, have you been following uh, football at all with the Champions League. Uh, I mean, uh, I've I've seen a few matches. Uh, really? Manchester United. You had not time to do that. <laughs> I know you're very busy in your work. Uh, I mean, I've I've just uh, maybe seen the highlights or just yes. followed up really. Um, but yeah, Ma- Manchester United—they're uh, not doing so well in the <laughs> not at all, no. in, in the Premier League. They lost to uh, Bayern Munich, um, yes, four-three. Uh, um, yes, Liverpool—they've had a really good start uh, just yesterday as well. Um, yeah. They won three-one in the Europa League um, in Austria uh, last night over the team Lask, and uh, second goals from Darwin. Uh, news from the penalty spot, Luis Diaz and substitute Mo Salah. They sealed the um, Group E win mm. uh, for Cobb's side, so that's, that's very good. Arsenal also played very good. Yes, they they were very impressive. Um, I think they won their um, their match against PSV 4-0, uh, and that was a very convincing win. Um, similarly, I think Barcelona were also said to have uh, had a convincing win. They thrashed uh, the Dutch club Antwerp 5-0. So that's in the Champions League. 
um, Spanish the Spanish compatriots Real Madrid struggled, but still managed uh, a win against uh, Union Berlin uh, by a single goal, courtesy by well who else but uh, by the new golden boy Duke Bellingham, and um, as far as the second favourites are concerned, Bayern Munich were uh, eked out a comfortable win against uh, what you were mentioning earlier. The uh, suffering Manchester United, uh, they won by four goals to three. But um, I think apart from the first half hour, um, they were comfortable in the match and uh, were deserved winners in that uh, particular <coughs> game. Um, Manchester City are the favourites, apparently, uh, to win the Champions League. Uh, and they <coughs> thrashed their opponents, Servina uh, Zvedela, 3-1. Uh, so... Um, they're on course for maybe back-to-back uh, Champion League's uh, wins. Um, <coughs> any other news? Then, uh, yeah, yeah so... Special um, happening anywhere, maybe in the community or elsewhere. I know the elders are having their um, uh, gathering um, here at Bethel at the beginning of October. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, a couple of weeks away. Yeah, um, but in terms of the Ahmadiyya Muslim <coughs> community, um, you know, next week we will be having the um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association, our annual uh, gathering, which is going to be taking place on the 29th, 30th uh, September and 1st of October. And uh, this is going to be taking place at the venue in uh, in Kings Kingsley, uh-huh. um, that's so the Alton. That that's yeah, that's uh-huh. that's in Alton. Um, so yeah, the preparation is underway. They've uh, set up the whole tents as well. As uh-huh. uh, we know that uh, this this weekend um, it will be also the Lejnai Mile. They will be also having their annual gathering, um, the Ladies Association. So uh, they'll be having their event. Um, do you know where that would be? Th- th- this will be at the same location. Uh-huh. Um, so a lot of the youth members as well, they've also been on site just uh, helping out with the lay- underlaying of the carpeting and uh, in terms of the setup as well. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, we've got some, got a lot of exciting games coming as well in terms of the uh, youth association. Um as I mentioned last last uh, last week as well, brother, believe we're going to be giving out some uh, burgers. Oh, oh yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do yes. stay tuned. Where so one burger if you lose, two burgers if you win, is it? Or two bur- uh, one burger. So so what we've done is we've made like a little crossword, and uh, in those crosswords, you can only. Um, fill out a column if you've done those particular tasks uh-huh. so that's what we're thinking of introducing and someone who has completed all of these tasks and the tasks can be very simple maybe that you've offered all of the prayers at the site you know you've listened to the um, speech of his holiness you've uh, given the exam you've given your uh, academic exam uh, of of the MD Muslim Youth Association, if you've done that as well, so there's various points, and if you've answered all of them, then uh, we will be giving you a very uh, generous happy meal that you can go and uh-huh. claim from the bazaar. Okay, well cooked. Yes. Yes, it'll expertly be it'll, it'll be expertly cooked. Okay. 
Well, um, I'm I'm also thinking of taking part myself. Really, but you, the one of the organizers, and uh, you. <laughs> um uh, well you'll uh, have to be impartial i suppose um so th- this this burger this prize is going to be given to anybody who completes yeah who completes all oh, of I the see. tasks oh, i see so it's not a competition as such it, yeah it's not a competition but I, I, we don't so, know how the turnout is going to be maybe okay. because we have a li- limited supply as well of burgers so ah, right. maybe <laughs> whoever claims them first right it will uh, will be gone but the the thing is um one of the main um tasks in there is to also listen to some of the speeches as well uh, mm. but uh, for example one of the main speech will be by his holiness who will be concluding the session um on saturday as well it will be the speech of uh, the head of the md muslim youth association as also they have to wait even for to listen to these speeches so hopefully i think maybe by sunday or sunday they can then uh, once they have completed the task they can uh, claim their happy meal okay <laughs> okay good That's very exciting i, I think it's, it's it's great that these kind of events take place because um uh, one of the one of the benefits of it is that they foster a sense of togetherness and camaraderie among the youth uh and uh, a sense of camaraderie why are they engaging in something that is purposeful mm. um and i think uh, i think that um it's always been uh, a very useful event uh it happens on a national scale uh, once a year but uh, they're also regional uh, gatherings on the regional istimas and uh, local istimas that take place so all in uh, all in good stead anyway um we have to move on now and uh, look at uh, the first of our main stories um and this is uh, entitled Imperial College Library renamed to Nobel Prize winner uh, Abdul Salam uh, Imperial College London has said it will rename its central library after the Nobel Prize uh, winning Pakistani scientist the late Abdul Salam Uh, the university's decision to recognize the theoretical uh, physicists uh, follows a report last year which focused on under-celebrated people from its past. Uh, Salam, born in Punjab in present-day Pakistan in 1926, joined Imperial in 1957 and set up the theoretical physics department with the late professor Paul T. Matthews He shared the 1979 Nobel Prize with two other scientists for his contribution to the electroweak unification theory. Uh, it is right that we uh, we do more, uh, said uh, University President Hugh uh, Brady, uh, and he said that it is right uh, that we we do more to celebrate the legacy of Salam, who made a tremendous contribution to Imperial. um he hoped uh, the new abdul salam library which uh, will be formally named in the next academic uh, year would inspire and i quote many more people in, in the years to come end of quote imperial describes the physicist as a passionate promoter of science education in the developing world having founded the international center for theoretical physics in 1964 so we hope to be speaking to uh, his son uh, Ahmed Salam uh, shortly 
but while we wait, uh, um, perhaps uh, you can, uh, Imam Tuk, you fill in some of the uh, other aspects uh, of this particular story. Yes, um, so <clears throat> it's a great achievement, and uh, you know, in terms of the and uh, the Muslim community as well, um, the Zoninism uh, Masuramid on countless occasions as well. He encourages <coughs> um, the youth that they should excel in knowledge as well. And uh, even at the um, annual convention that we have, uh, there is also a prize uh, where uh, for those students who have achi- who have excelled and have achieved um, in various fields, they are even uh, awarded prizes for their achievement in in um, in academia. And uh, if we look at the Holy Quran as well, God Almighty, uh, He revealed. Uh, he he revealed the the holy quran to the holy prophet peace be upon him the best and the greatest of all prophets and it it is the powerhouse of all knowledge for man at for all times um so whatever is in the heavens and the earth glorifies allah and he is the mighty the wise uh, this mentioned in the holy quran and it further says that he is the kingdom of the heavens and the earth and he gives life and he causes death and he has power over all things um, and he is the first and the last and the manifest of all hidden and he has full knowledge of all things this is from chapter 57 verse 2 and 4 and, and it mentions um, you know the verse mentions that uh, the, the Holy Quran itself you know just like uh, it was revealed and uh, it is the powerhouse of knowledge uh, hence we ourselves as well we should excel within within our knowledge and um, I'll further elaborate more on the Islamic perspective on this as well but I'll hand the mic over to Brother Vili to introduce our first uh, guest Thank you. Um, so we do have, as mentioned before, um, we were going to be speaking to uh, the son of uh, Professor Salam, Ahmed Salam. He is uh, with us. Um, I understand that he's driving, so there may, there may be some uh, background noise. Uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, coming on to the show. Salam alaikum, Ahmed. Great to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, how do you uh, view your father's legacy to be the first Muslim to win the Nobel Prize in science? Well, of course, that's that's a great honor in itself. But I think beyond that, what we have to recognize is that, that science and the work that he did in physics around the grand unification theory was a constantly dynamic, evolving set of um, uh, theories which were which coming through at the time which led yeah, about the creation of the universe. And so that's part of the legacy, but that science was always going to come through, whether he did it or somebody else did it, it was always going to come through. Mm. His more important legacy and his more enduring legacy is his work for humanity. And if you remember the, the creation of the International Center for Theoretical Physics, which is exactly designed to serve humanity by preventing the brain drain that students from the developing world should have access to the best intellectual brains from the developed world so they could learn better and then go back to their own countries 
and spread that knowledge further. So I think that's actually his most important legacy. Uh, so uh, how effective has uh, that contribution uh, been, in your view? It, I, you, I understand uh, you sit on the advisory board of the ICTP in Italy, don't you? That, that, that's right. So I think, uh, to my mind, it's been phenomenally successful to, uh, by the grace of Allah. If you remember, we've now had probably the best part of uh, half a million students go through the ICTP in the 59 years that it's been in existence. Mm -hmm. And you've now got partner institutes in Rwanda, in Brazil, in Beijing, all linked to the Abdul Salam idea and that Abdul Salam legacy. So I think you've got to look at it in any measure and say that's a very enduring, successful legacy. Mm. Uh, that's very interesting. How, how, what about his religious and cultural background? How did that influence his approach to science and his interactions with the scientific community? Well, of course, it, it's well documented that his, his inspiration was the Holy Quran and the inspiration that he took from studying and studying and studying the Holy Quran. And his most favorite uh, uh, chapter in the Holy Quran was Surah Al-Mulk which talks about the wonderment of what Allah has created in nature and that you should study it again and again and again. And that was his inspiration. So religion played a very significant part in his thinking. Mm, wonderful. Uh, um, my colleague, Toki um, Tanwir, is with me, if you don't mind answering his questions as well. Of course. Thank you. Assalamualaikum, Thank you for joining us this morning. I, I wanted to ask more about... Uh, uh, your father's um, in terms of his personality and can you share any personal anecdotes or stories um, that highlight his personality? I think I think there are so many but the one that now at the age I am now is the, the plea to parents about their children that they should really spend as much time as possible with their children and guide them and educate them and spend quality time with them and in this day and age don't just leave them with a screen, but actually engage with them, talk to them, stimulate them, and you know, really try and create that interest in learning from within them. So I think that's, that's a very important lesson. And the other is his humility and his completely you know, sort of down-to-earth approach where he was the most approachable, humble person uh, in, all, in all areas. And if, if, if we have time, there's a particular story which I always like to tell yes. about when he would come back from a very long journey and he would always travel in economy to save money. Um, and he'd come back from a long journey and if a car and a driver was to pick him up from the airport, he would then... So I'd greet him when he came back home together with my family. And if he, he would come in and my job was always to make sure that the driver was given a cup of tea and some refreshments. And only when I came back in and told my father that I had done this, would he then sit down and have some food himself and have some refreshments himself. But for him, it was always so important that the people who were working for him were taken care of. And exactly the same story with my, with my aunts in, in Karachi, they told the same story, that the driver was always to be taken care of first and foremost, rather than his own personal comfort. Thanks so much for, for sharing that. And uh, were there any particular values or principles that your father instilled in you and your family that were influenced by his scientific 
background or personal beliefs? Well, I think the, 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 the most important lesson is something that his father taught him, that if you lose an hour in the morning, you spend the rest of the day looking for it. So start early in the morning. Start your work early when your mind is fresh. And then you'll achieve that much more when you're not disturbed by worldly events, when everybody else is asleep. If you're up at that time and discipline yourself to be up early and start working early. And that was a very valuable lesson to learn. And just lastly, one more question for my side is that what lessons or advice from your father have you had uh, a lasting influence on your life and your career choices? I think it's always apply yourself, always hard work. Just simply work hard. Don't waste time because time is the most valuable commodity that we have. So don't waste time and apply yourself. But have a balance. You make your interest broad and varied. So whether you're reading or whether you're engaging in other activities, have a balance in your life. But remember to do your hard work. And above all else, remember Allah and be thankful to Allah. Great, thank you so much, um, Islam Sab, for joining us uh, this morning and uh, uh, you know sharing sharing uh, the insight of uh, some of the uh, legacy of your father. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. So we just listened to Ahmed Salam Sab, and uh, just a brief uh, background on him is. Had a long career in uh, investment banking, and he has worked at a number of banks, um, including uh, Chase and Credit uh, Credit Suzy. He was most recently the head of the Islamic Finance and Credit uh, Suzy, and he was a founder uh, director of the first Western regulated Islamic bank. Um, Islam has also experienced of corporate life having sat at, on the boards of uh, as uh, Brother Walid mentioned is on the boards of Aston Martin uh, Clive Christian and Urban Legacy and uh, Islam he serves the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the capacity of the National Secretary in Trade and Industry and he is also the chair of the Noble Talent Fund uh, UK charity and is on the advisory board of the ICTP in Italy. Um, so uh, thank you so much to Amosalam for joining us and uh, sharing uh, some of the insight into the life of his uh, father Abdusalam. Um, so we were looking at that uh, you know so, so a lot of uh, what uh, Dr. Abdus Salam what he had achieved he said that it was through the Holy Quran and uh, if we look at the Holy Quran as well we see that Islam teaches that everyone has the right to education regardless of their creed their race and religion and quite often we'd find uh, especially in the poor countries in the world as well, that there's a particular class, you know, the, or the society would generally, maybe towards women as well, that they do not have a right to education. But s- certainly Islam it encourages and it, and it says that every person 
has the right to education as well. And if we look at the first chapter, verse 2 of the Holy Quran, it says, it says, referring to Allah the Almighty, that He is the provider and sustain and any any sustain of all, all human humankind so that means that regardless of race of creed and class god almighty's grace and his blessing are for everyone and even those who deny uh, god almighty or speak ill of him his mercy um, and his blessings uh, his grace are even for those so similarly um Human Muslims believe that all humans are born equal as well. And when it comes to education as well, everyone has that right to education. Uh, similarly, if we look at the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he himself was uh, elected the head of state in Medina and he treated everyone equally. And uh, there is a famous narration that once a lady... Uh, considered high amongst the society, she had committed a crime and it was suggested to turn a blind eye towards her. However, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he said that even if his daughter, um, Fatma, peace be upon her, had committed a crime, she too would be punishable by law. So we see from this example that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he rejected the thought of favoritism and he said that whatever the law is it is the same for every individual whichever class they belong to and quite often in the society we live in now as well even in the corporate world as well we sometimes see as well that you would see signs of favoritism but when it came to the holy prophet peace be upon him he how boldly he said that even if his daughter was to commit a crime, she too would be punishable by law. So he completely rejected this thought of favoritism. Furthermore, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, instructed the literate and educate that they should teach the illiterate. And this helped the weak amongst the society to stand and advance. And uh, even if we look at the life of the companions, they, a lot of them, many of them, hundreds and thousands of them, had uh, memorized the Holy Quran from memory. And uh, this itself is is a very, um, very, although, you know, we do say that because of the, it's very easy to memorize the Holy Quran, but you can see from the, the companions as well that they were very, very much eager to excel within within knowledge as well and and to advance in that also um we we know that at the battle of badr which took place on the 18th month after migration um one particular instruction the holy prophet peace be upon him gave was that even the prisoners which were taken captives the holy prophet peace be upon him he provided their ransom to those who were literate and he said that they should first teach the illiterate members of the society and through that they could then uh, gain their ransom furthermore um, if we study the Holy Quran um, the Holy Quran continuously it tells us to ponder over the creation of the heavens and the earth and increase ourselves in knowledge if we look at chapter 3 verse 191 
Allah the Almighty says in the name of Allah the Gracious, the Merciful, that in the creation of the heavens and the earth and in the alternation of the night and the day, there are signs indeed for men of understanding. And the, the Holy Quran also taught us the prayer that, O oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge. And this is in chapter 20, verse 115. And... This is why we, we see that it was after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that Arabia itself became the golden hub, even in terms of secular knowledge, um, medicine and, uh, you know, other, 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 other professions. Arabia had become the golden hub. And we know scholars such as Ibn Sina who wrote, uh, books such as Kanun Fitib, he wrote con- very vastly on medicine, um, and we know that the first camera that was developed by Ibn Haytham, and his revolutionary work was even recognized by UNESCO when he was declared as a pioneer of modern optics. And it's also interesting to note that the word camera is derived from the Arabic word of uh, of kamera. And others have also recognized such works of Muslim scholars of that time, even to this day. Um, For example, a New York Times article published by their scientific reporter, Dennis Overby, he mentions the role of Muslim polymath Al-Tulsi. And the author states that Al-Tulsi published many great works on astronomy, on ethics, mathematics, and philosophy, making him as one of the great intellects of his age. And Muslims created a society in the Middle Ages, was the scientific center of the world, and the Arabic language um, was was synonymous with learning and science for 500 years, a golden age that can that can, among its credits, for the uh, pursuers to modern universities and since it was founded the Amdi Muslim community was founded in uh, 1889 and has always prom- promoted education amongst his members with the grace of Allah the Almighty the very first as we looked at this seg- segment as well the first Muslim noble laureate was an Amdi Muslim do- professor Dr. Abdus Salam and an intimate uh, physicist who won the Nobel Prize for physics in 1979 and throughout his life Professor Salam spoke of how Islam, the Holy Quran in particular was the inspiration and guiding light behind his work in fact he used to say that there were 750 verses in the Holy Quran directly related to science which enhanced our understanding of nature and the universe and furthermore, if we look at the Amdi Muslim community, the third caliph of our community, he also desired for a new dawn of great Muslim scientists and academics to emerge. And so within our community, he started a tradition of awarding gold medals for academic excellence. And each year, hundreds of Amdi Muslim boys and girls or men and women, they are awarded gold medals. And uh, also, um, if we look at early Islam, if we look in the 12th century, a Muslim cartographer, he produced 
what was regarded as the most ex- extensive and accurate world map of the medieval times, which was used for centuries by travellers. And in the medical field, many Muslim physicians and scientists made great discoveries and pioneers uh, many inventions that remain in use today. Many of the surgical instruments were pioneered by the Muslim physi- physician al al-Zarawi in the 10th century. We know that even the the first cataract operation uh, that also uh, was done by the, the these Muslim physicians as well in the 17th century and English physician William Harvey he famously carried out what was a groundbreaking research regarding blood circulation and the functioning of the heart however it was later discovered that more than 400 years before Harvey's research it was Ibn Nafis an Arab physician had already detailed the basics of the circulate of the circulation of the heart in an Arabic textbook in the 9th century uh, Jabir ibn Hayyan he brought about a revolution in the field of chemistry he invented many of the basic process and apparatus still in use today and the principles of algebra were first developed by a Muslim as much of the theory of trigonometry and in modern world algorithms are the basics of modern computing technology and they too were first developed by Muslims so the contribution of Muslim to intellectual enlightenment is still very much recognized and this is all uh, because um, you know just as Allah the Almighty he had uh, sent a spiritual reformer um, and he sent Islam which not only was for the Arabs but it was for the whole of mankind and uh, just like he had sent that scripture which was for the whole of mankind and we know Allah the Almighty when he sent that scripture as well he revealed to the Holy Prophet peace be upon him as well that that surely he is the one who has sent down this holy book and he will further protect it similarly Allah the Almighty he at that time he not only blessed um, Arabia at that time spiritually but also says in terms of secular knowledge these people had excelled and from what i've read out as well um, it's very much uh, it shows that how these early muslim scholars how much of a passion they had for for knowledge and uh, this is all because of that spiritual reformer that had come and through that holy book who had taught us the prayer that Rabbi Zidnil Madat, Oh my Lord, help me increase in my knowledge. So we see that those Muslim scholars, they had that thirst um, uh, to to gain knowledge. And this is the case with the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as well, that are are the the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, and our successors as well. They continuously, they motivate the community as well to increase in their knowledge as well and even in our we were mentioning earlier that uh, next week is the Amdi Muslim Youth Association as well so even in terms of the 
as Khudama coming, they're also taking part in sports. There's football, there's going to be cricket, tug of war. Um, you know, they're the, the, the youth members, they're going to be <coughs> enjoying themselves. But at the same time, in terms of their knowledge as well, there's going to be different speeches, such as the speeches of head, head of the, um, the Muslim Youth Association, um, the, the main highlight will be the speech of His Holiness Mizam Sur Ahmed. So not only you know these youth members will they be focusing in uh, their physical uh, activity and their sports, but also their secular knowledge as well. So we see that even within the community, this um, is very much encouraged that uh, you know we should continue to strive and to to gain knowledge. Um, I believe that I think uh, with that. Uh, we, we can conclude this uh, particular segment and I'll pass oh. the mic over to you. Thanks very much. Uh, very absorbing uh, discourse there, uh, I must say, uh, Imam Tukir. Uh, I'll be asking you a few questions about this uh, in the in the break that we're having. And we have to have a break because uh, the uh, 9 o'clock or the 8 o'clock news is upon us. Uh, do, don't go away. We'll be back soon after. So here's 8 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Uh, welcome back to the Breakfast Show of the Voice of Islam with Imam Tokit and me and myself, Walidam. The time is 3 minutes past 8. It's Friday, the 22nd of September, 2023. Now, as may have been mentioned before the break, we are moving on to our second main topic uh, that we are going to be discussing. And the title of this one is Britain No Longer uh, a Christian Country. Uh, so uh, this is um, something that has uh, been a cause of concern for uh, some, uh, especially when looking at uh, certain uh, statistics and certain measures. Uh, and uh, this is what uh, has been concluded, that uh, Britain may not be a Christian country anymore. Uh, the quarters of Church of England priests believe this is the case, uh, and this was following a landmark survey conducted by the Times, the most wide-ranging poll carried out among frontline ag- Anglican clergy, and the first survey of Church of England clerics conducted in almost a decade has found a strong desire among rank-and-file priests for significant changes in church doctrine on issues such as sex, sexuality, marriage, and the role of women to bring it into greater line with public opinion. The survey also uncovered high levels of stress among priests, many of whom feel overstretched. They fear that church efforts to arrest the decline in attendance will fail, and this may ultimately lead to its extinction. The survey analyzed responses from uh, 12,000 serving priests, the catch-all term for all ordained people who can celebrate uh, sacraments such as Holy Communion. The respondents mainly included vicars, rectors, curates, chaplains, and retired priests, who still uh, served representing around 6% of active clergy. 
and more on that uh, will be uh, uh, will be uh, discussed um, as we proceed through this particular segment. But we have to stop because uh, Professor James Walter, I understand, is on the line. Uh, good morning, uh, Professor. Uh, thank you very much for coming on to discuss this issue with us. Good morning. Great to be with you. Right. Um, how, how do you think, I mean, we're discussing this survey that was conducted uh, by the Times a little while ago that concluded that Britain is no longer, uh, a, well, it can no longer be described a Christian country. How has the religious landscape in Britain evolved over the past few years, in your view, and what factors have contributed to the decline in Christianity, do you think? Okay, sure. Well, we've been asking a question about religion in the UK census uh, Mm. over the last three censuses. So that gives us a a 20-year period. And there's basically two very pronounced trends. Uh, The first is a move from people saying that they're Christian to saying that they have no religion. And one of the big headlines when the 2021 census data came out was that Um, the number of people in this country who say that they're Christian has fallen under 50% uh, Mm. for the first time. So that's the first trend. And then the second trend uh, is, of course, the growth in other religions. And for the first time in 2021, that came over uh, 10%. And that's obviously largely due to immigration, different um, uh, religious communities coming into the country. But one of the things I would say uh, in connection with the first trend is, of course, uh, a lot of these um, immigrants are also Christians, coming particularly from Africa. And uh, the survey that you were speaking about earlier is among clergy in the Church of England. Um, And that, of course, is a national church that's really declined quite steadily uh, since the the Second World War. Um, But what we've seen over the last few years is the growth, particularly in urban centres like London, of um, new kinds of Christian churches, Pentecostal churches, evangelical churches, um, uh, you know, often very lively and with quite large numbers. So there's really a sort of changing landscape, uh, which I would describe as, in some sense, post-Christian, in that, you know, we're no longer a uniformly Christian country where uh, the majority of people are going to church every week. Um, but we're, we're, uh, but there's still a strong Christian legacy, strong Christian kind of culture, um, uh, and then and then we've got this kind of new multi-faith reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, what role do you think secularism has played in the diminishing influence of Christianity in Britain? How have secular values shaped the nation's identity? Well, you know, these terms that we use, uh, secularism, secularization, are quite difficult to define. Secularism, uh, in this country at least, has never been an ideology that was imposed in the way that obviously it was uh, under communist regimes. And in some ways it has been in France, where there was a very deliberate attempt to remove religion from the public sphere. Secularization in this country has been much more a kind of social trend. And uh, a lot of atheists will want to say that that trend is about people rejecting the superstition of religion in favor of science and seeing the world in a much more scientific way. But actually, you know, the data doesn't bear that out. And and, and it seems that secularization as a social trend is much more a kind of disconnection 
from traditional Christian habits and moorings, so regularly going to church, saying prayers before meals, uh, Christian school assemblies, these kinds of things have just uh, declined over the years. So um, when we come to talk about secular values, um, I I don't think that that this is some kind of sort of atheistic framework that's been imposed on people. It's much more an evolution of what was there before. Uh, And of course, that was a Christian culture. And there's been quite a lot of work done recently to show how a lot of what people think of as secular values, so uh, the, uh, the the dignity of the human person, uh, human freedom, uh, equality, and so forth. A lot of these are are rooted in Christian culture and have just kind of lost that um, the, those Christian moorings. Hmm. So, what about the response? This desire by um, Christian priests uh, to um, change ch- uh, uh, or make changes, significant changes in Christian doctrine on issues such as sex, sexuality, marriage, and the role of women to bring it into greater line with public opinion. Do you think that is uh, a reaction in the wrong direction? Shouldn't the reaction be to uh, modify public opinion to match uh, with Christian doctrine rather than change Christian doctrine? So um, there's obviously big debates in the church about essentially how fundamental these questions are. Um, I'm quite resistant to talk about these sorts of issues as matters of doctrine, because Christian doctrine has always concerned fundamental beliefs about God, about the person of Jesus Christ, about the identity of the church and the world. And Christianity has never been a, a rigid moral framework. Um, it's always sought to interpret these doctrines in the light of um, of culture as it evolves. And of course, that uh, makes demands on people, but it's, it's not a static framework. So, um, you know, there are, with, within the Christian world, there's obviously very, very divergent views uh, about how to respond to social change. Sexuality is one. Uh, how people think about gender these days is another. Um, and I think... Personally, I think it's it's very difficult to 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 answer. But one doesn't want to go in one of uh, of either two directions. One doesn't want to just sort of simply uh, reject the past and say, well, we go with whatever social trend happens to be dominant at the moment. But equally, we can't just be nostalgic and say, well, things must be as they were 50 years ago because um, you know that that that's. Uh, um, uh, reassuring to us, that's comforting. Mm-hmm. Societies change, societies have always changed, and actually Christianity certainly has been a religion that's always responded to social change. Mm. Well, that's very interesting. Um, my colleague also has a, a question or two, if you don't mind answering them as well. Thank you very much, sure. Professor. Uh, good morning, uh, Professor James. Thank you for joining us today. At, uh, the my Wilson. pleasure. Um, I want to ask you, what role can the government and uh, educational institutions and religious organizations play in addressing changing religious landscape in Britain? Great. Well, when uh, when I talk about um, religiously plural societies, uh, which is what Britain has become and actually what most countries are becoming, um, I talk about it like computers. You have hardware and you have software. So the hardware is the kind of um, structures and institutions that you need to enable 
all religious communities to flourish. So that's things like the law. You need to make sure that there is um, religious freedom for all communities. We need different kinds of institutions. We need to think about schools that cater to different uh, religious communities. Organisations, public institutions need to think about the facilities that they need. At the London School of Economics, for example, we've got facilities for different religious communities, including Muslim prayer rooms and ablution facilities. So that's the hardware. And then you need software, which is kind of cultural habits and knowledge that people need to live alongside one another as a religiously diverse population. So one of the things I feel very strongly about is we need better religious literacy. We need to better understand what our neighbours believe, what our colleagues believe, um, and we need to do that in schools, obviously. We need to think about the religious education curriculum. But actually, there's quite a lot of institutions, particularly public institutions, that need to uh, improve their religious literacy. We've been a little bit involved in that. Um, and, then, uh, and then the other part of the software, I think, is a culture of engagement and dialogue, um, uh, particularly um, among religious leaders. And I think we, we, we have quite a good situation in this country where relationships have been developed over many years uh, to, to, to connect with one another, to talk about difficult issues, and, and to make sure that different communities are represented in conversations and in public life. And, of course, a great example of this just recently has been the coronation of King Charles III, where... Uh, we were able to take a very historically Christian event, but find ways of respectfully and with integrity incorporating people from other religious communities so that everybody sitting at home, no matter what their religious uh, tradition is, was able to recognise, see something of themselves in that big national event. Absolutely. But when you are mentioning that uh, we need to know about other religions as well. We need to be well educated. Do you think enough is not being done already? I, I think we can do better. Uh, I would like to see, for example, um, religious education incorporated into the national curriculum rather than uh, at the moment there's quite a lot of um, freedom given to individual boroughs and individual schools to set the kind of religious education they want. From my perspective, knowing about world religions is now just simply a, a, a matter of global citizenship. We just all need a basic education across traditions, and I think we should, uh, you know, implement that quite strongly. And then, you know, government talks a lot about improving religious literacy, but I, you know, I, I, I think we're still waiting to see a sustained commitment to that uh, in certain areas. So, yeah, I think there's quite a lot more to do. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Professor James Walters, Director of the Religion and Global Society Research Unit at My London pleasure. School of Economics. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. That was great. Uh, Professor James Walters uh, is the Director of the Religion and Global Society Research Unit at uh, the London School of Economics. He's also a priest in the Church of England. Uh, and great talking to him. We now have another guest uh, in the uh, person of... Uh, Dr. Joanna Collicott, uh, thanks very much for joining us, uh, Dr. Collicott. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, uh, how has the growing diversity of religious beliefs and practices in Britain affected its identity as a nation? I think that's 
hard to say, and I'm not a sociologist, um, and I think a lot of the factors are big sociological trends. Um, I think generally Britain has become more secular uh, as a nation, and I think um, religious diversity therefore becomes part of a broader diversity in the country. Um, so along with that secularity, uh, I think there is perhaps an openness to spirituality across the board and um, and therefore perhaps an openness to a diversity of faith traditions. Um, I think uh, in terms of our identity as a nation, um, that, that we have become perhaps more, um, in, with our diversity, we've become more fragmented uh, in terms of our religion and the danger is a kind of fragmentation of identity so that you just have a series of communities or beliefs or traditions uh, and you pick whichever one fits uh, you um, and perhaps that is a kind of feature of postmodernism. Um, the uh, you know opportunities uh, are for much greater understanding of those with beliefs that are different from our own and a, a, a the um, opportunity to learn from each other. So I, I think that there's a kind of mix going on of um, people perhaps feeling they've lost something um, uh, and slightly disorientated, but also a sense of opportunity to gain something and to learn from others. Mm. Would you say when we're talking about identity that Britain is um, not so much a Christian country as a country of uh, a variety of different faiths? Would that is that uh, the change of identity that has uh, developed? I think it's become more secular, as I said. I, so ah. I, I think the place of faith has shifted. So I think faith is more marginalised. It's also more diverse. Um, uh, so we don't have this monolithic um, Church of England. We don't have the social structures, for instance, with Thatcher. We lost um, Sunday closing and Sunday trading laws and restrictions on people's movement in, 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 in a line with the kind of dominant faith of the country. Um, there's this very strong um, relationship between the Church of England and the monarchy that goes back a long way, which your last guest alluded to, mm. which we're now renegotiating in mm. the light of the death of Queen Elizabeth particularly. Um, so uh, I, I think uh, we're in a, a kind of shifting place in terms of place of religion, but it's yeah. certainly that dominant monolithic Church of England has gone. Yeah, yeah. So the number of what you're saying is the secularism that has uh, has influenced our identity more than anything else. Is I think it? it's very strong, right. very strong, yes. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Uh, how do people of different faiths and worldviews exist in modern, coexist in modern uh, Britain? Uh, and what would you say are the ch challenges and opportunities associated with religious diversity? I think in Britain we are potentially quite good at this, and I think it's because of our history of um, violence and religious conflict within the Christian faith uh, that has been part of our growth as a nation and something that we've almost, since the 17th century, been determined to put behind us and to go for consensus, to go for um, openness uh, and hospitality uh, and our... Um, our suspicion of over-enthusiasm with religion. Um, and that's part of the British character, and I think that's played well into um, uh, faith traditions living alongside each other in a mutually respectful way. Obviously, there are problems, but I don't think we have the sorts of problems they have, for example, in France, 
um, I think we are, uh, our, our starting position is to be hospitable to the other. And I think as we um, come alongside each other more as different faith traditions, when we're exposed more to people of other uh, traditions and faiths and backgrounds, we actually, um, uh, the, the probability of hatred arising, uh, of prejudice uh, working goes down and we know that from a lot of psychological studies and i think anything we can do to expose ourselves to the faith traditions of others work for a more harmonious society mm. do, you, do you think that that um, the influence of having other religions um, in the pro with the in the prominence that they they are uh, found in in britain do you think that's enriching or otherwise uh, i think it's enriching i think it's challenging um, I think uh, it's um, what I think is important is for interfaith dialogue not to get beyond the politeness and hospitality that we all want to show each other and to grapple with the kind of truth claims that we make, the world views that we have, so that we can genuinely learn new things from each other, so that we can genuinely debate issues around what is the nature of the world, what is the nature of morality, and what should we do um, as we move forward through the 21st century. Uh, so I, I think um, uh, having multiple faiths around is potentially very enriching. Um, the danger is that one gets almost overwhelmed by the number of ideas uh, and practices so that you lose a grounded sense of who you are. Um, and that would be true in any kind of cultural mix. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Um, my colleague also has a couple of questions. If you don't mind answering them as well, please. Okay. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Dr. Joanna. Hello. Hi. Um, how have shifts in religious affiliation and belief impacted the role of religious institutions such as churches in British society? I think um, in some ways the, uh, it, it goes the other way almost, that the, the position of the church has also impacted people's um, religious beliefs. There are social, uh, big social changes around. Um, I think churches have a much less powerful voice in the public square than they used to and that's partly um they used to speak a few you know a generation ago there would be a very strong moral voice from the churches but because of some of the abuse scandals that have plagued us um because churches are naturally and religious institutions are naturally more conservative and society has become more liberal it's harder for the churches to find uh, that authoritative voice i think metaphysically um the rise of science and particularly the rise of neuroscience has kind of marginalized um, the uh, not voice not only of the church but of all faith traditions in making metaphysical claims and people naturally turn to authoritative figures equally from the sciences now um, to speak on these matters and I think pastorally um, distress human distress has become medicalized increasingly so in recent years and therefore um, the voice of the church in speaking about what it means to live a, a, a good life and a healthy life has also become rather diminished. And that's true for the church as an institution, which has always been powerful, but less so now. But I think also for other faith traditions need also um, to work at finding an authoritative voice in the public square. And, and one thing we might do is to work together as faith communities uh, around that issue. Thank you. And has there been a shift in Christian character and virtue in modern Britain? I think, yes. Um, I think the core virtues in Christianity remain the same, and people agree on them. 
but I think there's a shift in how people understand how these are worked out. So two examples. One would be the understanding of what a, a chastity means, what a morally, sexually uh, moral, pure life would look like, and a much more openness to diverse ways of expressing um, faithful commitment in relationships, including same-sex relationships. Um, the other area is um, the notion of the stewardship of God's gifts, where the focus has moved from uh, money, possessions, and the individual talents to the planet, and uh, a, a re-understanding in the Christian tradition of creation and incarnation, um, that our job is to care for the planet as a gift from God. Um, and those, of course, are influenced by the, the zeitgeist of the, the secular society in which we are set, but they're still um, theologically uh, valid ways of working out virtue. So there has been a shift. And Dr. Joanna, you've mentioned that uh, people have become more re- liberal and because of that, um, generally we see that uh, within Christianity they don't, there is not that authoritative figure anymore. Do you think that's the same with all religions now? Um, uh, yeah, uh, yes, in Britain, um, uh, I think so. Uh, I, I think... Um, there's an interesting shift from, I think, an interest within Christianity from looking at the established church to turning to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which seems to speak with a slightly stronger voice. Um, across other faith traditions that are not Christian, I think there's a willingness to uh, be respectful and hospitable. I'm not sure how seriously people, uh, the culture, treats um, the voices of faith traditions. I think there's a, 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 a desire to understand these as cultural diversities, not necessarily um, moral or faith uh, or theological diversities. And uh, just lastly, one more question from my side. Do, do you think people are generally just moving more and more away from religion nowadays? I think um, from the religion as we have experienced it in the past, yes, but I think people are constitutionally religious um, and that they can't go very long without constructing something that looks like a religion. Um, so you, uh, And it may not be such a good re- a religion as, as the religions that we have um, lived with over hundreds in, and thousands of years in some cases. So I think people are um, moving away from the religions that they have been offered in the past, but I don't think that will continue forever because people not only are naturally spiritual, but they have a natural tendency to religious faith and practice, and that will re-emerge in some form. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Joanna. For, uh, 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 my co-host has uh, one more last question he wanted to ask you. Yes. Um, if you don't mind me um, asking you this, uh, one, one additional question is, you know, you mentioned, uh, uh, Dr. Colliga, about the, um, the influence of secularism and the impact of secularism. Um, in influencing our identity, do you think that it has uh, this influence of secularism? Do you think it has been detrimental to our well-being, um, made us uh, perhaps uh, move more towards materialism and self selfishness rather than selflessness, which would be, I suppose, the values that religion would promote? Um, the short answer is yes. I think. I, I, mm. I think. I think the secular voice 
is a, a great can be a great critical friend to faith, which can become self-absorbed and, and, and corrupted. Uh, and uh, I value a lot of secular insights myself, but I think as a dominant ideology, it's uh, it, it leads us down a, a nowhere uh, and and does not contribute to um, well-being. I don't use secular to mean uh, scientific. I think science is a very good partner for um, uh, faith related uh, issues and conversations but I think kind of uh, a basic secular ideology that is materialistic um, uh, and hedonistic mm. and relativist yeah, yeah. takes you nowhere no no, no exactly no uh, I, I don't think I would disagree with you I think that's a very fair analysis um, thank you very much uh, for uh, uh, coming on to the show thank you very much for uh, being with us uh, thank Dr. you so much Dr. Kolikon wish you all the best in the future Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Right, um, in we we we've got another expert as well soon to come on. Uh, this is going to be um, Tim Hutchings, and uh, Tim Hutchings, uh, if we are able to get him on, is uh, an associate professor of religious ethics at the University of Nottingham. He's a sociologist uh, of religion, and he researches and teaches on the topics of digital media interfaith encounters and religious education well we are trying to get him on as soon as we get him on we'll be putting him through i'm sure uh, but in the meantime uh, in a month we will uh, be um, um yes no, I, be- I believe he, he is on hold is he on hold the lights are not uh, flashing in the same way So we're trying to get him on, aren't we? That's what the lights are saying. But, um, uh, it's interesting what he, what uh, Professor Collicott was saying. You think he's on? Uh, good morning, Tim Hutchings. Are you are you on the line? Ah. Well, I think we're just trying to uh, get him on there. I just wanted to read out. Um, some of the statistics as well of or from office for national statistics mm-hmm. and it shows that in uh, 2011 um it, it, the figure was actually 59.3% who said that they belong to christian faith and in 2021 this dropped to 46.2% and also uh, people who said that they do not affiliate with any any religion um, in 2011 that was 25.2 percent, but in 2021 that has increased to 37.2 percent. But mm. what's interesting is that uh, Brother Walid, the mm. um, it says that uh, Muslims um, in 2011 it was 4.9 percent, but in 2021 this has increased ah. to 6.5 percent. Okay. So th- there there is an increase mm-hmm. uh, in that, but uh, that could also mm. uh, one factor could also be to with the migration of uh, a lot of th- members from Muslim countries. Uh, but I do believe we are joined uh, by our next guest. If I could. And the mic to you, yes, too, please. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Tim Hutchings, uh, Associate Professor of uh, Religious Ethics at the University of Nottingham. Uh, thank you very much for coming on, uh, uh, Professor. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, uh, pleasure to speak to you. I mean, uh, we're discussing this uh, this issue about uh, decline, uh, our apparent decline in Christian 
identity uh, in Britain. Uh, when when did the decline in Christian adherence in Britain begin, and what are what are, in your view are the, some of the key factors that contributed to this trend? Um, well, one big question is what it means to be Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you ask different people, they might have different answers to that. Uh, if you asked a Christian church, they might say, oh, well, being Christian is about believing certain particular things about Jesus um, or uh, regularly attending church, coming to, to certain church rituals, that kind of thing. Um, now, if you look at church attendance, that starts to decline in the 20th century, so a long time ago. Um, if you look at the question of whether people believe in God, um, that actually remains high quite a lot longer than church attendance. So that there's a, um, the, those statistics of personal belief versus practice separate in the 20th century. Um, but the, the census, that data that you were just asking questions about, that, mm. um, that question of what is your religion is only introduced for the first time in 2001. They hadn't asked that question before. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2001, something like three quarters of the people in the country said, oh, we're Christian, which is fascinating because that is far in excess of the number of people who said that they believe in God or the number of people who were attending church at that time. Um, so you've got this big proportion of people in the country who are culturally Christian or, or historically Christian or who are maybe thinking, well, yeah, of course I'm Christian. My parents took me to church at Christmas, something like that. They identify with Christianity. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they identify with Christianity all the time. And one puzzle about this is that the way you ask the question changes the answer quite a lot. So if you say that, that question that the government asks in the census, it's kind of a leading question, right? The question is, what is your religion? And then you're given some answers. And that suggests you've got one. Um, one interesting thing in the latest statistics is that that question, what is your religion, is asked after, I think, the question about your ethnicity, as though there were a connection between them. So mm. you say, well, so you might say, uh, well, I'm, I'm of Pakistani heritage, and then the next question will be, right, so what is your religion? So there's sort of some, some connection between those things. Mm. Um, but, no, so you've, you've got this, this mm. moment in 2001 where lots of people say they're Christian. And then we ask the census question again 10 years later, and that number has collapsed. Um, so this, it's, it's very recent. It's in the lifetime of most of the people listening to this radio. Um, you've, you've got this rapid decline in people just being willing to say that they're Christian between 2001, 2011, and 2021. So you're not disputing the, the, the trend, the decline... Uh, in Christian adherence, uh, are you? Uh, or are you saying that uh, because we're just comparing two figures, it's uh, not enough data to uh, um, to, to conclude or to make no, a conclusion? No, not at all. And mm. So I'm saying that something really interesting and important has happened, um, but you can identify with Christianity in a lot of different ways, and, and our, nationally a lot of people have, have changed their minds about that at different times. Um, so the figures for actual church attendance don't decline that much in recent years, but it's a, it's a very small proportion of the population. But just the, the general sense among, I would say, particularly white English people, let's say, because that's, that's where the census is, um, 
the sense of white English people to say, well, of course we're Christian, we're English, it's the same thing. That has suddenly collapsed over the last 20 years. And that is important. Okay. And what are the key factors? Why do you think that has happened? Um, Well, there's quite a lot of Quite a lot has happened over the last 20 years or so. Oh, one factor could be the census itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the government never asked that question before. So maybe in 2001, people didn't think about it too much. By the time 2011 comes along, there are campaigns to say, if you're not religious, say you're not religious. Um, but you also have, in the early 2000s, the rise of new atheism. People like Richard Dawkins. Uh, it becomes very popular to talk about religion maybe not being a good thing in the world, um, to, to identify openly as somebody who's not religious. Uh, it was not until really the, the mid-2000s that we had, for example, a, a political leader of one of our major political parties who was willing to openly say that he was an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, other things, um, scandals. The, the child abuse scandals within certain Christian churches explode into the press in the early 2000s. Um, The war on terror, potentially, I think, raises, um, and the the massive rise in Islamophobia that comes around that, I think, for a lot of people, breaks this sense that religion might somehow be a naturally good part of society. That's all the suspicion of religion and radicalization and the danger of religion. Um, So those are some factors that might be relevant. Um, you could also talk about age, less dramatically. Uh, you talked about the rise in the Muslim population in the country. Um, partly that's because of immigration. Partly also, the Muslim population is pretty young. Um, the average Muslim age is much, much younger than the average Christian age in the country. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of Muslim kids are being raised in between these censuses. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a lot of Christians who are older may be dying off and not being replaced. Right, so so Christianity is not something that, in in one context, is not something that is appealing to the young. But that, that that's potentially part of it. Or this, okay. um, right. Yeah, um, becoming difficult to to raise children into the that particular religious tradition and keep them there into adulthood to raise their own children. Do you think part of the reason is that um, with increased literacy there is a difficulty? Uh, posed um, for some uh, certain doctrinal beliefs of Christianity, things like uh, doctrine of atonement and the Trinity that people have difficulty in getting their minds round, and therefore it is something that tends to uh, to shun them away. Do you think that is also a contributory Um, factor? Well, so possibly, but... If you want to say something like the, the conflict between religion and science or, or the rise in literacy, um, those are trends that happened a long time ago mm-hmm. in this country. Um, they can't really explain why a big proportion of the country would stop wanting to be seen as Christian between 2001 and 2011. We didn't you know, learn to read in the mid-2000s. Um, and I think also that th- those are issues that will make that will be very meaningful to people who are very involved in the religious tradition who understand a lot about it um they're not necessarily going to be uh, make a big big difference to someone who never goes to church but sort of quietly assumes that they're probably christian what could make a difference is 
um, are trends in sexual and gender ethics, um, the, the changing values of our society. Um, so, for example, the idea that women cannot be priests or vicars or leaders in the church becomes really controversial in particularly the 1990s and the early 2000s and the later 2000s. Um, some of the big Christian churches start to be seen as as forces that are opposing common sense. Mm. Um, they're opposing the liberation of women. They're opposing um, equality for LGBT people. Uh, and those are still issues. But for, for some people to be identified with the Christian church is to stand against the, the, the common sense values of society. Mm. And we were talking to Professor Collicott uh, earlier, she was advancing the uh, the proposition that it is secularism that is actually changing the identity of uh, the religious identity of Britain. Do you think that is also a factor? The um, the onslaught of secularism. Um, so, so in a way, yes. The 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 big changes I'm talking about in academic circles, we talk about this as, as secularization. It's the process of religion losing its influence in, and particularly Christianity, losing its influence in many areas of society. Um, but the question is still why that's happening. Uh, so the, the onslaught of secularism happens because people start to find secular ideals and secular ways of organizing society to be attractive. So that, that's not, that's a, I'd say that's a description of the process. It's not the underlying explanation of why those ideas are appealing to people. Mm, okay. Oh, thanks very much. Um, um, I've got my colleague as well with me, and uh, he would like to ask uh, a couple of questions, if that's okay with you, uh, okay. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Tim. Um, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the main arguments for and against the idea that Britain should still be considered a Christian country, despite uh, the decline in uh, Christian adherence? Um, well, firstly, there is an argument of scale here. So, so yes, the proportion of people who are identifying as Christian has declined. It's gone slightly below 50% in the latest census. And as I mentioned before, it, it varies a lot depending on how you ask the question. Um, that's still a lot more significant than the proportion of people identifying with anything else. Uh, you, you mentioned about 7% of people are identifying as Muslim on that census. Um, I think you can also say um, it's not just that a lot of people in society think this is important, but Christianity is written into the systems of our society in a very deep way. Um, if you just think, for example, how much of the calendar is focused around Christmas and Easter, um, when schools break up, all the school holidays, how difficult it is for many people to get any other religious holidays accommodated by their workplace. Um, if you look at the proportion of our education system that's run by Christians, um, the something like one in three schools around the country are faith schools. Almost all of those are Christian schools. And of course, there are some Muslim schools as well. Um, you have still got bishops sitting in the House of Lords helping to decide what our laws should be. And there are lots of ways in which Christianity is um, written into, still written into the fabric of British society, even if most British people um, have, have stopped taking a great interest 
in, in any kind of religion, but particularly in Christianity. And and finally, are there any specific regions or areas within Britain where Christianity remains more dominant? And if so, what factors can contribute to this? Um, well, so if you look, uh, yeah, you'll have to Google it. I haven't got the, the web link in my head. But if you look up the government's census faith and religion data, there's a map. Uh, it's a fascinating map. We love to talk about this with students. And you can dig in on that map to neighborhoods, to streets, um, and you can see exactly where the proportions of different groups of people are. And there are often really interesting stories about why different groups of people have ended up in different places. Um, you may find, for example, that there are lots and lots of Christians in parts of the country where immigration is quite strong, um, where there might be thriving black churches, for example. Um, you can, If you look at... The partic- I'm in Nottingham. If you look at Nottingham, you'll see we are just above one of the most religious places in the country. Uh, we're Birmingham and Leicester, where there are lots and lots of uh, particularly Muslim populations. Um, and we're just below some of the least religious places in the country, um, where huge proportions of people identify as non-religious. Um, and I've talked to people who live in all those areas to try and figure out what it is that's going on. Um, one of the interesting things, I, I talked about these being trends that have happened over the last few years. Um, these are these are changes that we've seen happen in the world around us, and I often talk to people who just haven't haven't seen that happen. They don't realise that they're living in the least religious place in the country, or that you know 20% of people have decided not to be Christian anymore in the last 10 years. So they've, it's happened around them, but it's like we're fish swimming in the sea, and we don't see how the sea is changing around us. Mm. Um, can if I've got time. Can I make a point back to you and your audience? Please go ahead. Okay, I promise it'll be quick. Um, So the research that I do, Mm -hmm. um, I talk to schools and I talk to the people who teach religious education in schools. Um, And that's one of the ways in which you could say, historically, this is a Christian country. In every school, um, a degree of religious education is uh, compulsory in every year year of schooling. Um, The great challenge is it's very, very hard to find qualified people who can teach those religious education classes. Mm. Um, we are supposed, as a country, the government target was about 600 new RE teachers this year. We've got like 250. Um, it's a huge, huge problem. Um, and historically, those RE teachers have been Christians. But of course, they don't have to be. Um, RE is a subject where Islam is taught. Um, all the world religions are taught. Non-religion, atheism is taught religious education teachers could be coming from absolutely anywhere. Um, So I think one of the challenges of this conversation we're having, um, particularly for any Muslim listeners, will be to say, um, if you think that Britain is no longer a Christian country where Christianity deserves a special place in everyone's attention all of the time, uh, but you do still think religion um, is something that children need to know about, become an RE teacher. Hmm. Um, go and train and go into teaching. There's a huge shortage of qualified people who understand religion, who can teach this subject to children, um, particularly a shortage of Muslims who are going into that as a profession. And there are hundreds and hundreds of jobs around the country waiting for anybody who's willing to take them up. And if somebody is uh, interested in taking up your suggestion, how should they go about doing it? Um, if you look up, get into teaching, you will find all sorts of different routes into teaching that you can do. 
Um, you can uh, pay the fees to go to university to get um, a teacher training degree at your local university teacher training college. Um, if you don't want to do that, you can go straight into a school, learn on the job, earning a salary. Okay. Um, there are lots of different routes in that you can find. Okay. Now, yes, very, inter- very interesting. I'm sure people will, will take take that up. Uh, Certainly uh, hope they do. Now, thank you for letting us know. But what, just getting back to this issue about um, people perhaps moving away from religion, do you think that uh, um, this is something that we should be worried about because moving away from religion is also indicative of abandoning the belief in God and that in turn leads uh, to irri- a sense of irresponsibility, uh, maybe selfishness rather than selflessness. Do you think that's, uh, that, that's a fair comment, that's a fair worry to, to hold? Um, well... So I, I would say that people who are not religious are rapidly increasing in numbers. Um, people who are willing to openly say, I don't believe in God, religion has nothing to do with me. And those people are still behaving ethically. They're still behaving responsibly. They're still raising families. They're just getting their ethics and their values from other places. Um, and I would say a challenge for religious groups here is that maybe once upon a time you could talk about atheists as a sort of boogeyman scare figure. We all know that if you don't believe in God, you can't behave ethically. Um, But now, about 50% of the population is refusing to believe in God and seems to be behaving in a fairly ethical way. Um, Mm. We need, those within religious communities need a much better understanding of what, uh, how non-religious people tick. Where do people actually get their values from if they're not getting it? from a religious tradition, a religious community, a sacred text. Um, and maybe that, think of it like an interfaith dialogue. Yeah. Um, you, if, if you already have interfaith dialogue between Christian and Muslim voices, well, humanist voices, non-religious voices, atheist voices also need to be part of that same conversation. Mm. Okay, uh, no, I would uh, love to have continued this discussion, but our time seems to be up. Uh, thanks very much for coming on. and thanks Thank you for very that, much for your uh, time. Thanks for prompting our listeners to get into teaching. Uh, I'm sure somebody would uh, take that up. So thank you very much for, for uh, coming on to the show. Bye. Right. Wish you all the best, uh, Professor Hadin. Thank you. And, uh, well, this uh, is there anything more to say, uh, Imam Tukir? Um, it's, it's been a very interesting discussion. We've had different uh, guests, different experts on as well. They've uh, t- tackled this uh, the this question on religion as well. Uh, you know, if uh, religion matters, um, and uh, you know, if we look at the writings of the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he explains the fundamental of uh, the value of religion itself. Um, if we look at one of his writings, he says, and I quote, that what is religion? It is the path one adopts for oneself. In reality, everyone has a religion or creed. An irreligious person who does not believe in God exists, still has to choose a path to follow, which in essence is their religion. However, one should stop to think whether the path they have chosen in life truly gives them everlasting happiness, peace and tranquility.
And this, que- this question should be posed to the rejecters of religion, that truly which part, the path they are following, does it truly give them everlasting peace and tranquility? So he further says, the Promised Messiah further says that religion is only a general word. It means the path one treads on, and it is not a word that exclusively applies to faith. And experts in the arts of science, physics, medicine, astronomy, or any field of knowledge also have canons, doctrines, and belief. However, it is certain it is it is a certainty that they will not provide salvation to anyone. Just as a soul requires a body and word needs meaning, so too does mankind stand in need of religion. The point here is not whether the being is called Allah, God or Parmeshir. Rather, the real issue is how one perceives the being he calls out to. Our view is that whatever name one assigns to the higher being, the real question is how do they recognize and comprehend him? And what attributes does that being possess? The actual matter one should reflect on is the nature of the attributes of the divine being. So he beautifully explains that look, that even if you look at someone who is not religious, they still have a doctrine, they still have some principles. But the question here that we should really ask ourselves is that the path we are following does it truly give us everlasting peace does it give us happiness and this is the question we should ask and this is what religious says is that when if you do find your god then you know you have attained the purpose of your life as allah the almighty says in the holy quran that allah that it is truly the remembrance of allah the almighty that hearts find comfort it is that that you know that there is that thirst within mankind as well that they need true satisfaction and this is what religion says that it is truly religion gives you that that when you become one with god when you have that communion with god then you would find that everlasting peace as well and that is what we finding the examples of the prophets as well that just when mankind moved away from religion itself it was at that time that the prophets came, as it is mentioned in the Holy Quran as well, that Zahar al-Fasadu fil Bari wal Bahar, that corruption had appeared on the land and sea. And it was at that particular time that God Almighty sent his prophets and tell people that remember Allah the Almighty and rekindle that love for God yet again. So Islam has described the attributes of God and explained that none have ever been suspended. And the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he says at one place that the essence of religion is based on two overriding aspects, which are the rights due to God and the rights due to his creation. And he further says that it is worth remembering that religion is based on two rights, that the first rights owed to God, and this includes how one should believe and have faith in God, and manner he should be worshipped. And the second is the rights that must be discharged to God's creation. This compromise of how one should display compassion, love, kind-hearted, benevolence to God's creation and must alleviate their 
afflictions, pain, and sorrow. So thus, the promised Messiah, he has silenced the critics of religion in a beautiful way by explaining that true followers of religion, they discharge the two overarching rights upon which religion is based, the rights due to God and the rights to his creation, and the rights to God's creation are fulfilled when one shows true sympathy and compassion to God's creatures, shares in their pain and suffering, and forgives and overlooks their fault. And this is religion as explained by Islam. And so clearly Islam does not teach to kill or to you know to uh, shed bloodshed uh, or to you know any any uh, form of extremism but we will mention that side in, in another show and i think with that we can conclude uh, the show and I'll hand the mic over to you to conclude the show please yes thank you very much for that imam uh, sakif um yes um we can come to the last um uh, last part of this show which is to thank those people who have involved in this production uh, our producer Malia Abdullah is uh, worthy of our gratitude as uh, are her researchers Nia Latif, Aman Mir and Basma Latif thanks also due to uh, Zishan Arshad uh, our uh, engineer in the technical room making sure that everything ran smoothly so, Zakallah, um, thank you to him. And uh, let's also not forget uh, the contributors, the experts that came on to the show to lend us their expertise uh, to understand the subjects we were discussing better when we were looking at the uh, Imperial College Library renamed to, uh, to Nobel Prize winner Abdul Salam. When we were looking at that subject, we were, uh, we were joined by Ahmed Salam, who spoke very eloquently about his father. And then when we were discussing Britain no longer a Christian country, uh, we had uh, Professor James Walters joining us. Uh, he was from the London School of Economics. Dr. Jo- uh, Joanna Collicott also joined us. She is a lecturer at Oxford. And then we were also uh, blessed with the expertise of Professor Tim Hutchins uh, of Nottingham, who uh, gave uh, us his take on this particular subject. Uh, so thank you to all our listeners for uh, staying with us. Uh, we will be back again, uh, Toki Sab and I, next Friday, nine, uh, 7 to 9 o'clock. Do join us then. Asalaamu Alaikum.